Let's pray. Oh, Lord, um, I believe that to be true, that you are so good. God, you're good. Jesus, you are great. Like, and yet, um, for many of us, God, there are tough decisions to be made, and for many of us, bad news was received. For many of us, we just have this real uncertainty about what's going on in our world, our workplace, our families, our homes, our schools with our kids, God. God, I believe your scriptures to be both timeless and timely, meaning when they were written 2,000 years ago, they were perfect for that day. And so they were timely, God, and then, you know, timeless in that what you used and and the Gospels and, and your books of the Bible, God, are so practical and helpful for us today. And so, Jesus, would, would, would you please let your word uh, be presented in a way that only you can, God? Would you give us supernatural wisdom and curiosity and attention span, God, and the ability to actually receive these things? And God, I think about, Jesus, what you say, and you say, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, right, is like the wise man who built his house on a rock. Because when the rains came, meaning rains and storms, do, rain and storms do come. When the, when the rains came, right, there's some, some safety, some help, some certainty that comes with trusting you and putting this into practice. So God, for the many of us who believe that you're real and loving and these are actually your words, Lord, would, would you take these words, would you apply them to our heart and then place them into our hands and feet? And God, for others who aren't quite so sure, God, I think the thing we, we all can agree on is we like certainty. None of us here would be devastated to know that there really is a God who loves us and has a plan for us and he is bending and shaping all things for our good and uh, your glory, God. And so, God, would you just... Um, would you open up our hearts and minds? And God, would this time, in the next few minutes, uh, God, would it be exactly what John the Baptist declared in Luke 3, quoting Isaiah 700 years earlier? So these words from 2,700 years ago where it says, prepare the way of the Lord. God, would, as opening up the scriptures, God, prepare the way for you. That it would, we'd make straight paths for you. That we would remove every mountaintop, fill in every valley, and make every crooked path straight so that all mankind, all humans can see and know your salvation. And so God, would, would this time, these scriptures, with these moments, sitting in living rooms, workplaces, and cars, collectively and individually, God, would this be a moment where we can see and know and experience your salvation? And I pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Good to see you all. Lots to cover today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57, and we're going to go all the way through 80. That's a lot of verses. It's going to be the biggest clump we've covered in, uh, in these first six weeks. And so as you turn there, I just want to ask you a question, okay? Uh, you'll be on the screen behind me in just a second as well. just want you to think about this. Think about this all around, all around. Who is the greatest person to ever live? Greatest person to ever live. So, don't use Jesus. Obviously, he's got God as a father. It's a little different. Fully man, fully God. But like just, not just a God who is, not God who lived, like fully man, fully God, but just a fully man person, right? Not the fully God person. Who is the greatest person to ever live? Why don't you think about it? Why don't you, if you're sitting uh, with other people, why don't you tell them who you think it is? Ready? 
One, two, three, go. Now, take just a second and argue with the other person while your person's greater. Ready? Ten seconds. And if you're by yourself, you can talk to yourself on this, right? Maybe you can come up with a couple people. Now, here's the question. Is, is it a Bible person? For those of us as Christians, is that where you go? Do you go uh, the Apostle Paul? He did write two-thirds of the letters in the, in the, uh, the New Testament, right? Two-thirds of the books of the Bible come from, or the New Testament comes from Paul, planted churches all over, you know, Asia, Africa, Europe, Middle East, right? Paul? Mother Teresa? She's really good, right? No? Got maybe your mother-in-law? Maybe that's the one you used, right? If she's in the room, I'd recommend you use her, right? We actually know the answer to this question because Jesus actually tells us who the greatest person to ever live outside himself is. You ready? And tells us this in uh, Luke chapter 7. We'll get there in a little while. By verse 28, it says this. That among those born of women, among those born of women, none is greater than John. So here we go. John, this is not... John the Beloved. This is not Jesus' little buddy who writes the gospel according to John and the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, all those different books. This isn't the one that Jesus entrusts his mother to on the cross. That's that his little buddy, John the Beloved. It's so interesting. John actually says, the one whom Jesus loved. That's a different John. That's one who wrote uh, words that we have. This guy that Jesus says is greatest didn't write any words that we have. His name is John. We call him John the Baptist because he baptized a lot of people, which is pretty messy because he was actually standing up and telling people they should repent, that they should walk away from their, their broken life and chase after Jesus. He was offering everybody hope and joy and peace that can only be found in God. And he was offering it to both the Jews and the Gentiles. That means religious people, irreligious people. He was claiming all that. And Jesus says, John the Baptist was the greatest person to ever live. And here's the craziest thing about that. We get very little information about his life from birth to age 30. And then we got about six months of ministry that John does before his head gets cut off. Literally, his head gets cut off. So six months of ministry that he did. Six months of doing something. And Jesus goes, among all the women to birth child, of all the chi children, of all the people birthed by women, John is the greatest. I don't know, maybe, maybe you struggle with that. You go, well, as Christians, are supposed to be humble. Yeah, yeah, but let's just be honest. All of us would like for our lives to matter. We'd like for them to count. We'd like to leave a legacy. We all, now just, let's think about this for a second. We all, in some way or another, really believe, think about it, think about it. Maybe, maybe life has beat you up, and now you have more uncertainty. But we all, kind of deep down in us, really do believe that we were made to do something in this world, Right? Like, maybe your dreams have been crushed, but if you go back to 7, 8-year-old you, 12-year-old you, 15-year-old you, like, whatever those things are, straight out of college you, or straight out of high school you, or, like, maybe you can go all the way to the first memories you have. All of us, all of us, all of us. We don't have to agree with each other. We don't have to like each other. We don't have to agree with church. All of us kind of would like for our lives to matter, and there is a reason that you want your life to matter, because to you and to God, they matter, right? Like, there, there, is, there is a reason you exist, and hear me, hear me. This is so important that every single person who hears this right now, right? Every single one of you were created to have an impact in this world that was unique and different than every other person, right? We talk about this, and we'll talk about it through the sermon today, this idea of a mago day. It's a Latin term that means in the image of God. You were made in the image of God and his likeness, and there's a reason for that. 
Not only because God loved you and wanted to know you, be in a relationship with you, but because he actually wanted you to live a life, Jesus tells us, that was fully alive. The thief, the enemy, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I come to give you life to the fullest. And here's what I'll argue. John only had six months of ministry. Less than 31 years probably of life. And he was the greatest and had a life that was fully alive. Right? Want that? Even as Christians, uh, we'll talk about humility a little bit in this, right? But humility, as I told you last week, C.S. Lewis says this, humility, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less often. And the way about what you think of yourself less often is you think about other people more often, right? You feel your thoughts with other people and how you serve them, how you care for them, how you do these things. What we see about humility is as people that serve and help and care. Jesus is the perfect example of humility. Right, it's interesting, we think humility is that we go, man, we're so dumb. Boy, we make mistakes. And real, we're real honest and kind of real quick about talking about where we struggle and what our battles are and how we're not very good. Like somehow we believe that's what humility is. And here's the thing, the perfect example of humility is Jesus. And he never once talked about what he, uh, what he did wrong because he didn't do anything wrong. No, he did candidly talk to God about his struggles, right? So there is some of that. But this idea that, we, that the, the, the role of humility or how we become uh, humble is um, you, you just talk about all your flaws. Nope, nope, nope. Humility and greatness, they, they can coexist because the idea is when you're humble, you use your gifts, you use your talents, you use your calling to serve other people, right? What we're going to see today is uh, the scripture tells us, let our light so shine before men. Why? So, we can, so that others can see our good work and glorify our Father in heaven. So there's this, um, this, this balance that we have to play of going, how do we serve others and how do we do it in greatness, right? Not for us, but to point people to Jesus so people can understand that. And John, John was the one who definitely did that. In fact, he was the one who was great and then pointed people to Jesus. In fact, before Jesus shows up on the scene in the Gospel of Luke, which is the one we're writing, first John shows up on the scene. He's the precursor, right? Like he's the appetizer of Jesus as the entree. Pretty, pretty neat, right? And here's the interesting thing is we get excited about the, the appetizer because it's not going to fill us, but because we, we want something and we want something. We're waiting, waiting. The food might take longer. It's going to be good food. We understand that, but we need the appetizer first, right? John was the appetizer. He wasn't going to fill us. He wasn't going to sustain us, but boy, was he going to prepare us for what was to come. And so Luke and the gospel of Luke tells us the story of John the Baptist. And so if you've been with us the last five weeks, we've been working through the gospel of Luke. Here's kind of the short synopsis. Luke was a doctor, physician, scientist turned medic, uh, uh, investigative journalist, right? He's hired by this guy named Theophilus, this rich guy who is trying to figure out whether or not he can have certainty in who Jesus is. Probably a Roman official, probably required to say Caesar is Lord, not Jesus is Lord. And uh, Theophilus is probably wondering, hey, if, if this is true, I shouldn't say Caesar is Lord because he is not Lord, but I got to say that to keep my job. But if this is true, I got to say Jesus is Lord, but there's all sorts of ramifications. My life could be more uncertain, more complicated, more overwhelming could be filled with more angst and so Luke goes and spends years if not a decade investigating the story of who Jesus is he would have met with eyewitnesses he had read all the documents he would have heard all the oral tradition and then he kind of sits down and presents this orderly account chronological account of who Jesus is and he tells the office he writes these things so that you may have certainty about the things you've been taught. So Luke writes a biography about Jesus' life, both for Theophilus, that's the timely piece, and for all of us, the timeless piece, so that we too can have certainty about all this stuff and what we know in our world is, boy, is it uncertain. 
right? Boys are hard to understand what's true and what's real. We don't know what news to, 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 to read. We're not even sure about like the coronavirus and COVID, and we have all sorts of speculations about that. We're not sure what to do about school. We don't know what, even when we read the news, whether it's true or not true, there's all sorts of stuff, and, and it seems to be so editorialized on all sorts of different accounts, and all of us, we'd like to have some truth and some certainty in what we know. Jesus tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Right, and so truth is a person, and so we've just been trying to figure out, reading the Gospel of Luke, how to have certainty and stand firm on truth. So we're going to do that again today. One last reminder about the Gospel of Luke, really, really neat. That is the largest or the longest biography about Jesus' life. It was 1,151 unique verses that Luke writes, and in those, 568 of those verses are direct quotations, direct citations of Jesus' words. So Luke is going, let me tell you this, half of it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little bit of the context, I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story, but half of the words are literally going to be just Jesus speaking truth for how we have certainty so we can uh, deduce, induce, uh, discern that part of having certainty is hearing Jesus' words. And then part of it is actually doing what he says. And so that's what we're going to do today. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this guy named John and go, if he's great, how do we participate in that? If John was certain, how do we participate in that certainty? So today, a little bit of a character study on this guy, John the Baptist. And so we're going to look at him today. And so if you have to tune out or accidentally tune out or get hungry or whatever that is, let me just I'm just give you kind of the big idea, and it's going to take me a long time to get all the way around the around the around the mountain, right? And so, but here here it is. Here's the idea. Are you ready for it? It's this: is that if you want to have certainty, if you want to have certainty in your life, right? If you want to have certainty in your life, right? You cannot get caught up in the current of our culture. If you want to have certainty in your life? You cannot. You cannot. Cannot get caught up in the current of our culture, right? You cannot get swept away. If you want to have certainty in your life, you cannot get caught up in the current of our culture, and many of us are right now. We're pretty overwhelmed by it, and so all of us would like to take a little bit of a, st- a step back and take a deep breath, and so we're going to do that together today, or you can take some deep breaths. I'll take some shallow ones as I keep charging through this, but if you want to have certainty in your life, you cannot get caught up in the current of our culture. And so that brings us to the gospel of Luke. Let me just catch up to speed on what's happened so far. John has introduced us to a couple people. One, he introduces us to this guy named Zechariah. You'll hear more about him today, right? So we got Zechariah in the story and his wife, Elizabeth. So you got Zechariah and you got Elizabeth, their husband and wife, and they're old, super old. So John, Luke wants us to know the story of Jesus, and he's going to start with the story of John, kind of as the appetizer, right? But he doesn't actually start with the story of John. He starts with the story of John's parents, Zechariah. He's a priest. Elizabeth is uh, from the tribe of priestly people, so they they are Christ, or they're God lovers, God worshipers, and Zechariah lives in this little hillbilly mountain town just outside of Jerusalem. We don't know how far, but we know it's in the same state as Jerusalem, same region, but he lives in it, and he kind of probably pastors a few people, I don't know, a dozen, six dozen, maybe a few dozen, and a couple times a year he gets to travel into Jerusalem to serve the people of Jerusalem inside the big temple that Herod built, right? And so he gets to do those things. Where the Bible starts is this interaction that Zechariah has with this angel. He goes in one day, and this really kind of 
uh, significant, probably the most significant moment in Zechariah's life where he is the one going to talk to God on behalf of the people. And kind of the understanding for the Jews at the time is they understood the world, were, the world was uncertain, and they also understood that they weren't able to fix that uncertainty, right? They had come to the conclusion that their life was going to be hard, and they weren't going to be able to fix themselves. They weren't going to be able to fix their political regime. They weren't going to even be able to fix their nation, and they weren't even able to fix their families. And they knew the only one could was God. And so what they would do time and time again is they would worship and acknowledge that Jesus, or that God was the only way to make a way where there was no way, right? Like God was the only one who could do those things. And so what they would do in part of their worship is they would make sacrifices. And in the sacrifice, they would go, we understand that we need forgiveness, right? And we understand that there's actually pain and sacrifice involved in forgiveness. And since the beginning of the foundations of earth, you see it with Adam and Eve, that the way by which people made sacrifices is that innocent blood was shed. So these folks would shed these, uh, these unblemished, these animals, and go, God, you are greater than our best meat. God, you're greater than our best items. You're greater than our comfort and our security. And they'd make these sacrifices for their families. And also, these priests who are responsible for kind of helping shepherd people back to God and see God, these priests would go in before God weekly and go, God, 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 would you please, 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 would you hear our cries? Would you see our sacrifice? Would you hear our worship? And would you make a way where there is no way? Would you send the Savior? And so Zechariah gets the opportunity to go and pray that prayer for his people. And at the same time, Zechariah is praying this prayer. He also has some hurt and pain because they're in their old age and they can't have a child. And so many reasons why having a child was so important to people. Then you can go back and listen to the first week's sermon to understand that. But there is pain and sorrow and suspicion. And yet he was going to make the sacrifice before the Lord and go, God, 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 would you hear our prayers? God, things are so uncertain. Our political regime is so messy. People are so angry at each other. Right? Everything is so volatile, God. And Okay, if you can't just meet my needs now with a child, could you at least meet our collective needs? And so as he's praying, he says, Amen. All the people are waiting outside, waiting for Zachariah to come out. They would have celebrated. Finally, someone else goes and speaks on behalf of God. We know that God is still hearing, so they would have heard from the priest. They would have celebrated the priest. They would have known that God would have heard from the priest in his temple. But Zechariah stays put in there for a little while because what happens is that there is he has this interaction with an angel. The angel tells us his name. It's Gabriel. There's only two angels that tell us their name, Gabriel and Michael. So this is a pretty significant moment. And Gabriel says to Zechariah, guess what? Your old wife is going to have a baby. And Zechariah goes, there's no way. There's no way she's old. I mean, I'm old, but she's really old. There's no way. It doesn't even make sense. Why would you do this now, right? All these kind of things. He has all these questions. And he can't even process the questions because they just come out of his mouth, right? And so God, in his infinite wisdom and grace, in this moment, strikes Zechariah, not dead, more gracious than that, but strikes him mute. He can't speak, and we're going to learn today that he couldn't hear. <laughs> and so he goes, hey, you're going to have a baby, you're going to name him John. And that means God's gift to the world, that God is gracious. So you're going to name him John, and this is going to point to the, not that John's the greatest gift, but he's going to point to the greater gift. And so he tells us of Zechariah. Zechariah comes out, and he's doing charades, and people are confused, and they're making note of that. And uh, then we find out that Zechariah goes back to his hometown in the hill country, little hillbilly town, right? And we see that Gabriel also interacts with Elizabeth, and she, he goes, hey, you're going to have a baby. You're going to have a baby, and you're going to name him John, and he is going to be great. And he's going to point to that which is even greater. He's going to be the appetizer for the entree that we're going to get to consume and enjoy in Jesus, right? He's going to be great. He's going to be great. 
you're naming John, and she celebrates, and she goes, thank you, God, for hearing me and fending off uh, the accusations and the gossip about my life because people would have been looking at Elizabeth and goes, she can't have a baby. That means either God hates her or she did something wrong or she's broken. Her whole identity had been wrapped in that, and so she responds and goes, God, God, you're so gracious in that. And so all we know next is she just kind of goes back off into her town in the hill country of Judea. And then what happens is we find out about another person, right? And that's Mary. So Mary shows up on the scene. That's the next story. And God basically says the same thing to her that he said to Elizabeth. Hey, Elizabeth, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be great. But point to something greater. And now Luke is going to pan the scene to Mary, who's this teenage girl. And in that culture, you could have gotten engaged at 12, married by 13. So we know that she's engaged to a man named Joseph. You'll learn more about him in upcoming weeks. But Mary, Mary, um, could have been as early as like 6th, 7th grade, and she finds out she's going to be pregnant with God's son, right, with Jesus. And so she has some trepidation and yet some worship and excitement about that God had not forgotten her and all those things. So she starts worshiping, and what she does after she finds out this news, she actually travels 100 miles, 90 to 100 miles, by herself as a teenager to go and talk to her relative, Elizabeth. So Mary and Elizabeth, they're hanging out, having conversations. And what we saw last week is in these three months that they're together, uh, uh, Elizabeth speaks blessing over Mary, and Mary responds to worry and pain by worshiping, right? And this is what you learned last week, that uh, worship is our solution to worry, and pain, uh, praise is our prescription for pain. So we see this, and Mary just breaks out in song, and she just talks about who God is, right? That the way that we view our complicated world and view everything in it is that we have to look top down, that God is still good, and God is still loving, and he is great, and he's sovereign, and he's providential. And we talked about all that last week, and so Mary breaks out in song. Then we learned last week, when your circumstances can't change, your perspective has to. And so we see at the very end of last week's message, she, um, last week's scripture, Mary breaks out in song, acknowledges God for who he is. Hear me. Not what he's done yet, but for who he is, right? Just establishes that, who he is. Mary celebrates that, and then it says after three months, Mary goes back to her circumstances, right? Goes back to her home. Not sure what it is. Not sure how Joseph's going to respond. Not sure how her parents are going to respond. Her circumstances at this point have not changed. The baby has grown inside of her. It's even more evident, right? Is she going to get stoned? Is she going to get humiliated? Is she going to be kicked out of her family? Is Joseph not going to care for her? Is she going to not be able to take care of her own child? A child having to take care of a child, all sorts of complications. Her circumstances hasn't, haven't changed yet, but her perspective did because top down, she saw God. And it says she went back, went back to her town in Nazareth, 100 miles away. So she makes a trick back, three months pregnant. She makes that journey. And we'll see more of Mary in upcoming weeks. But what we see this week is now the story is going to turn very specifically back to Zechariah and Elizabeth. So at this point, we know that when Mary went to see Elizabeth, she was about, uh, about six months pregnant, right? Uh, now, all of a sudden, uh, Mary stayed three months. She's leaving. So this means uh, Elizabeth is, you know, about to have a baby. So Luke gives us a little bit of context. Hey, uh, Mary left. Here we are, nine months. So what we know is about to happen is this lady is about to have a baby in her old age. So let's see what happens next. Verse 57, here's what it says. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. So Elizabeth has a baby. Got it? There we go. 
We got Elizabeth. We got Zechariah. We got baby John the Baptist. This is what he looks like. Oh, we'll just keep that up there for you. Uh, but this is baby John the Baptist. Now, hear me. You're not going to hear very much about John the Baptist's life for his first 30 years. Remember, this is a character study. It took us a while to get here. Character study on this guy. So we got to go. What made this guy so great? Right? We want to be great. Not like we want all the attention on us, but we want our lives to matter. How did John the Baptist's life matter? What prepared him for that? And so what made him great? And here's the first thing I would say. This would be worth writing down if you want to write it down. If not, it's okay. And here's the first thing. His parents, commitment to the Lord. Right? The two of them, listen, listen. A long time before Elizabeth has a baby, Zechariah could have gone and found someone else. In fact, we see this story in, uh, with another old couple, with Abraham and Sarah, right? Uh, God says, you're going to have a baby. And Sarah's like, I'm old. And so what happens is Elizabeth and uh, Sarah and Abraham scheme a plan to get uh, uh, kind of a maidservant, a slave, uh, uh, a servant in their house, pregnant, it's a baby named Ishmael. This is the first son outside of the wedlock of this union, but they do that because they're impatient and not confident in what the Lord can do, and they want them to have a kid, right? And so for both of them, they could have done that. He could have divorced her. He could have gone and found someone else. He would have had the right to because she was incompetent, right? She could not actually—she was uh, not capable of producing a child. He would have wanted a child to—could have walked away. He doesn't. Right? And we see, even when she finds out that this is the case, she celebrates and worships God. They both worship God. And so the first thing we see about this really, really important, one of the best parts about greatness in this is that um, got two parents who love them, love him, love God. And so this gets really uncomfortable to talk about because not all of us have that, right? And so this isn't a shot to go, hey, if, if, um, if you are a single parent, there's no way your kid can be great. No, God does great and mighty things. We know nothing, nothing about Mary's parents, by the way. So we don't know her story. Uh, we don't know any of that kind of stuff, right? So this, isn't, this is the only way. But, you know, one of the things that we can look at is if we are parents having two parents, parents, parents who are committed to God. So if it's two, great. If it's one, okay, it's what it is. But God is redemptive. So one of the great things about helping children grow in favor with the Lord and into their greatness, right? This isn't like a prosperity message. You'll hear more about what greatness is as we move forward, but in this, right, is that two parents are committed to loving God, right? And we can talk about all sorts of privileges. You know, there's a lot of conversation about privilege and white privilege, and many of us who are Caucasian, a lot of us in our church are trying to learn and understand and hear, and I get all that, and I even get the complications of the fear for African-American families in terms of for their kids, the color of skin, the judgment, what it looks like for all sorts of reasons, right? And I understand that there is some, uh, some genuine, legitimate um, privileges I get as a white male in America. I, I believe all that to be true, right? But I don't believe that's my greatest privilege, right? This is, I believe that is a privilege for me, right? That white privilege that we hear about, all those kind of things, complicated to talk about, and don't want us to land there. But what I still think the greatest privilege that I had in the world is this, having a mom and dad who loved me unconditionally, who loved the Lord and pointed me to him, and I knew no matter what, they were for me and with me even to this day. I'm 39 years old. If I were to lose my job, if I were, if life were to get messy, I would not go hungry and I would not be homeless. Why? Because I got a mom and dad who love me and love the Lord, right? Not everybody gets that. And one of the things that I feel this deep conviction is we got to help our church in that. We got to help our church chase after families, be godly parents, all those things. But what we see here is the first thing that John was brought into is into a godly family. 
right? Two parents that love God and love him. Now, this isn't, like, it's going to be the greatest situation. I don't know that John will ever get to throw baseball with his dad, right? I mean, like, this is an old man. Got an old lady for a mom, and this isn't, like, the active. I don't know that they're running around playing Hot Wheels on the carpet. So this doesn't even talk about, like, the investment and how they built a relationship with John. But what we do know is they love God, and they love him. And so that's where it starts. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and bore a son. That's John. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Woohoo! I'm gonna bring John the Baptist down to the bottom here. There you go, John. Look at these neighbors. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah. So what we got for these neighbors, really, really important, is Zachariah is a pastor, right? He's a priest, and all of a sudden he's been disciplined. He hasn't been able to talk for nine months. So there's some suspicion and investigation that, that maybe they had heard that um that once the baby's born, he'd get to talk again. So far, baby's born. He still hasn't talked. And all these neighbors, all these relatives, they are there. I don't know if you remember that when uh, you had children, but both my mother-in-law and my mother were like waiting outside the door, ready to run in with when Briggs was born, right? That kind of thing. And so the neighbors heard, and they had heard that God had shown mercy. That means God let an old lady get pregnant, right? And so they are there. They're celebrating, and they were rejoicing. You notice that? with her showing great mercy on her rejoicing with her so I don't know why they're not thinking about Zechariah maybe they think he's still being punished maybe he's not godly maybe God hasn't been merciful to him yet all those kind of things so we see that there's a baby and they're celebrating with her not with them but with her and so we see the story all three there's a baby now the family's there what's going to happen next in verse 59 it says this and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, right? And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. So all these neighbors come, the party, the, you know, they're going to uh, uh, circumcise the child. This is uh, not because of hygiene. This isn't kind of what we see now, you know, 2,000 years later. What this would have been, this is a God-fearing, God-loving family. And this promise, what they're doing here is they're reminding them, reminding John, because they love God and they love his word of the promise that God gives us in the beginning of the scriptures, right? For the first 10, 11 chapters, there's just this mess of broken people. And finally, God makes this covenant with Abraham. And he goes, look, you're not going to be able to fix yourself. You're not going to make a way back to me. They learned that even with the last kind of round of the Tower of Babel. So the flood and Cain and Abel and the Tower of Babel, all these things. And God finally goes, hey, I'm going to set everything right. And I'm going to make a covenant. That means without stipulation between me and you, meaning I am good. I will always be good. And I will make a way where there's no way. From that point forward, there's always this plan that God was going to send what he would call a redeemer, right? Someone who would buy them back, a, a savior, someone who would deliver them from the pain and sorrow into this life that they wanted to live for all eternity, right? And so the way by which Jews during that time, on that way forward, the way that they would kind of identify that there was this commonality for people, right? This would have been important even when you think about husbands and wives getting married. There'd have been a real, very distinguishing factor of whether or not that man was believing that God in covenant was going to, you know, redeem and restore and deliver all those things, right? And so the way by which they did that was actually circumcision. Circumcision was a reminder and pointing to this covenant that God had made with his people. So on the eighth day, they're celebrating this covenant, and they are going to circumcise him. Everybody's watching. Poor Zechariah. Thank goodness there's not video cameras. But that's what's going on in this moment. And it says, and they would have, see that? They, meaning 
these people, they would have called him Zechariah. Now, this is, uh, after his father, this is important because of the lineage he has. Zechariah was a priest, so we know this would at least be probably much one that's at least a second-generation pastor, second-generation priest, right? And so maybe they're going, well, Zechariah can't talk. Let's name him Zechariah so he can pick up where this guy left off. Right? I mean, it'd be really great for two different people to be able to, you know, make sacrifices in the temple on behalf of the people. So they would have named him Zechariah because that would have established him as his father's son, would have established his lineage, it would have established his occupation, his career path, all those things. And so they would have named him after his father. So this is what they would have done. This is what they would recommend. Watch this, verse 60. It says this, But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. Nope, he's not that, because we had these interactions with Gabriel. That's actually the reason my husband still can't talk. But God told me very specifically to name him John, because he was going to be a gift that was going to point to the greatest gift. He was going to be the appetizer. Not another priest, not another person who goes and makes sacrifices of these, you know, trinkets or these animals to God. But he was actually going to point to the ultimate, the real, perfect Sacrifice. All the people that have been promised and waiting for the solution that God would one day bring certainty to their world. She's going, no, no, he is that person, and God told us to name him John, so we will call him John. Now, she's a woman. These guys are probably men. They have more authority in this misogynistic, broken world to watch what happens next. And they said to her, None of your relatives has called this name. So this is, this is an argument. They go, okay, we're celebrating with you. Yay, Elizabeth. Yay, Elizabeth. High five. Ooh, God showed you mercy. Here's this baby, Zach Jr., really, really happy that he's here. And so name him. Let's get the birth certificate, all those kind of things, right? And she goes, nope, we're naming him John. Now, at this point, notice, no one's talked to Zechariah. Why? Because he can't talk. <laughs> just can't talk. So they must think, damn, they're celebrating. Elizabeth celebrating the baby. So Zechariah, I don't know, sitting over there, maybe, you know, gnawing on a, you know, a teething toy. I have no idea what he's doing, right? And so now all of a sudden, because Elizabeth says no, well, how dare her say no? We know what's best for them. We have a cultural arrangement that the daddy names the son after the daddy and he stays on the same path. It is already written in stone. There is a path forward. You go to 12 years of school, 4 years of college. Then you take up after your daddy. There's just this cultural expectation that this is what they do. Now remember uncertainty in your life. You can't get caught up in the current of your culture. And so she's going, no, 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 no. I have some certainty here. I have some certainty that God told us to name him John so we're going to name him John. And, and they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't have that right. And so it says this in verse 62. And they made signs to, uh, and they made signs to the father. And they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted him to be called, right? So you see this. So this is funny. So they make signs. What we can deduce here is not only for nine months was Zechariah unable to speak. Also means he's probably unable to hear. Right? And so this is a complicated nine months. He's just... Processing and processing, thinking about God. Does he have bitterness or anger? I mean, literally, for nine months, he cannot speak. Elizabeth is really, really excited. Hooray, hooray. He can't speak, but you know, that's a joke. But John, in this moment, like, what, what's he going to do? Right? And so they go to John now and go, hey, tell your broad, tell your wife that she doesn't have to write and that she should make us a sandwich. Right? That kind of thing. And they made signs to the father inquiring what he wanted to call him. So, hey, what do you want, Zechariah? What do you want to name his son? Obviously, you should name him Zech because that's what we do in our culture. Hop on board the culture train. That's what's always happened. That's what you should do too. Verse 63, it said this. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote 
His name is John. It's so funny. This is, you know, I told you, you kind of see this. You see these really neat things. You see charades. Zechariah is like the first one to do charades a little earlier, making these things. And all of a sudden, you see like the analog iPad, right? Pulls out his Apple Pencil, pulls out his, you know, iPad, whatever that writing tablet is. I don't know. I don't know if it's Slate. I don't know if he has chalk. I have no idea. And he writes very clearly on there. His name, his name is John. And watch what it says there. It's really, really, um, probably not the best translation. Uh, I mean, it is what it is, but there are, there's like a, there's a negative and a positive view of this next statement where it says, and they wondered, and they wondered, right? And that literally means they were speechless, right? Uh, well, no, I'm sorry. That means they had, they were suspicious, right? There was this judgment. So he says, name John, and they all kind of sit back in their mob and go, we got to cancel him. We got to cancel him. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not following the right cultural things. He's using the wrong words. That's not what that son could be. That's, that's, his name can't be John. We got we to cancel him. So in this, when you see they wondered, this is, got to see this. This is judgment. This is judgment in this moment. That's, the language is implying that, that there's judgment. There's judgment here, right? There's, there's literal judgment. He goes, nope, his name's going to be John. It seems so silly, but this is a huge part of the culture. No, we've already defined what he should do with his life. We've already determined his, his trajectory, his path. We don't need God's help in this. We know what's best for Zach because that's what we do in our, in our cultural mob. We know what's best for the culture. If you just listen to us, then everything would happen there. And so what you see here is this real battle in culture of John going, or uh, Zechariah going, nope, his name is John. And they wondered. And they judged. They canceled him, right? And so this is where I think it's really, really important because I don't know that they were doing it to be mean, right? I don't know if they were hateful in this. There's just this, <laughs> this current that they're in, right? There's just this current that's going. They're caught up in this current. There's a way that it happened. All their friends agree with them on the current of the culture. So they're going, hey, jump in the river with us. There's a way to do this. And so they have a real expectation here. And that expectation leads them to some contempt or judgment towards Zechariah because they're going, this is how this works. This is how this works. No, name him Zechariah. Hey, Elizabeth, name him Zechariah. Oh, obviously she can't do it. Hey, Zechariah, you got to tell your wife what to do because we know what's best. This is culture, right? And so they may have very pure motives. They may think this is how you honor God. This is what's best in our world and our, uh, you know, in our place right now. So if you are wrong, I'm right. But there's other people, I promise you, there's other people on my team. They'll also convince you that you're wrong and we are right. So why don't you just come on board the culture train and get with us and then you would understand. And so there is, maybe not here, but you see it in our culture. There's this, this vitriol, right? Literally in our church, there is tension and anger and frustration between us between you, right? Of people who love God and are caught up in whatever's going on around us that we have real harsh disagreements. And some of it's about just not understanding. Let me just give you a, an example, right? And uh, one of the things I just want to point out here is <laughs> this is part of our church culture and will be. So we're to use the word culture and saying you can't get caught up in the, the current of our, you know, worldly culture. But um, part of our reality and our DNA here is we just live in the messy middle be honest with you, it's not fun, guys. It's not fun to be in the middle because uh, you kind of get beat down on both sides, right? Because uh, we, we, we're trying to not appease everyone, not for sure, but trying to go, how do, we, how do we have grace and mercy and empathy towards the brokenness in our world? Definitely, how do we not expect people who aren't Christians to behave like they are, right? This, the, the reality of 
Christian worldview, Jesus is not behavioral modification, right? It's, it's surrender, lordship to Jesus, right? And so there's no way that we can expect people who don't have Jesus in their life to live like they do. So that we, um, in those ways, in terms of a lot of our uh, rhetoric towards non-Christians is gracious and loving and all those things. And yet, uh, so we want to comfort the afflicted and uh, but afflict the comfortable. And so our, our rhetoric inside the church is we can do better, right? We can be the change. And an example is this. And just hear me out through the whole thing. You're welcome to email me, Josh, that's LC family, if you, you, you disagree. But again, I just want you to hear this whole thing. One of the things we're seeing right now, right, in our world, in our culture, is Black Lives Matter. You got it? I just said that statement, and some of you are like, ha-ha, yeah, you're on our team. And others are like, how dare he, right? And I'm like, just, just hear the whole thing, because I, I, I'm an equal opportunity offender, I think. And so, just hear the whole thing. And so, um, here's what I'd say, and you've heard me say it. I agree. Black lives completely matter. You hear me? African-American lives matter. And for some people, maybe even a lot of people in our country, in our culture, maybe even in our church, right? They would go, they don't matter. Now, I don't, haven't had those interactions with people in our church. I've never heard it, but there's this, there's this battle. Black lives matter. Yep, wholeheartedly I agree. I've even coached you on this. This makes sense to me. If I break my ankle, I don't go, all body parts matter right? I look at the one that's broken, and I point, point to it, and I go, let's, let's fix that. There's pain in that. And so when we go from Black Lives Matter, and we want to go, but all lives matter. I'm going, yeah, yeah, I get that, get that. They do all matter, but there's no way there's some pain and some sorrow. And let's just have some empathy there, some empathy there, right? And so let's, let's agree. Black lives matter. Now, on the other side of that, you got that. So you hear this language. I'm going, yes, black lives matter. You should hear that. We should care for our brothers and sisters, particularly in this moment of anxiety and uncertainty. How do we love each other and get better at those things, right? How do we, how do we hear each other? So we got that statement. Absolutely, black lives matter. Now, on the other side, you'd go, well, Josh, you don't know about black lives matter then. I'm like, oh, I'm just saying a sentence. Just a sentence, right? Black Lives Center. And, and so we go, but you don't know the organization. No, yeah, yeah, I do. I get it. I get it. I understand. And so uh, in the organization, this is where it gets weird. is because you got this statement, Black Lives Matter, absolutely, Imago Day, all made in the image of God, all very true, right? Yes, black lives wholeheartedly 100% matter. But in that statement, hidden in the, in the current of the culture, you go blacklivesmatter.com and you read a little bit about it. Hey, should I invest? Should I, should I, should I, um, you know, write checks. Should I, should I donate to this organization? Because I believe Black Lives Matter. And then you'll see, like, if you watch NBA games, so you go, I would dare, I would never watch an NBA game. Because on the, on, the, on the court, it says Black Lives Matter. And you go, well, I agree, Black Lives Matter. And many people go, yeah, Black Lives Matter. But then you might say, well, but the font, the font on the court looks like the font on the website. And the website isn't just about black lives. In fact, there's all this other stuff it declares in the culture. Let me just read you one part of it, okay? Here's what it says on the beliefs page of the Black Lives Matter movement. The organization, not the declaration. Agree wholeheartedly the declaration, but here's what it says. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. Hear me again. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. Now, by the way, that's not a Western prescribed. It's easier to say that because we go, yep, bad Europe, bad America. Uh, that nuclear family is just as Eastern ancient Near Eastern and ancient and like this Western or this prescribed nuclear thing was set up in the beginning, right? I told you one of the greatest things is having a mom and dad who love you and love God, right? And so God, when we think about what he set in place, he set up marriage 
and then they set up family, right? Why? Because human growth and development should happen in the family. That's the best option for human growth and development. That is not a cultural thing. That's a biblical thing. And so go, oh, let's just take this, and then here's, here's what we see here. We disrupt the Western-prescribed nuclear family structure requirement by supporting each other as extended families. It's great that you support each other. And villages that collectively care for one another. Okay, well, I don't know why you'd want to disrupt the family unit. It's really, really valuable. I understand why you got to redeem it because that's not always the case. There's not always two parents. How do we care for each other? I believe the church should be participatory in that. I think the church's job is to help establish and, and, and value family and support family. But okay, okay, yeah, there's some single moms. There's single dads. There's orphans. We got, we got to jump in and do all this stuff. But I don't know that we want to disrupt it to that point, right? In fact, the, no, we don't. Like, there's a prescribed way. Which this, is, this is better. And they're going, nope, let's dis- disrupt this. And I'm just reading their words. Um, that and, and villages that collectively care for one another, especially our children. Now hear this. To the degree that mothers, parents, and children are uncomfortable. Let me just read that term for you one more time. To the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Do you see any words missing there? To the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. We, get, we covered mothers, so we got that idea of parents. Do you see what's missing here? Fathers. Literally, the, the word father is not even in the mix, right? Like, how in the world? Like, this one of the greatest benefits that uh, John the Baptist had, the greatest benefit that I had is had a present father. We don't want to disrupt that. And so when we use the t- statement, Black Lives Matter, and you'll continue to hear me, you yep, I agree wholeheartedly with the declaration. But what you hear there, some of you go, like these guys go, whoa, whoa, whoa that's not what it means. You understand that right there, it, it hidden, underwritten in this. And there's more stuff you can read on, in terms of their beliefs page. This is the one that's going to highlight. Written underneath, there's this blunt declaration that we want to disrupt the nuclear family? So, you see, just in that statement, we're talking about these two different things. We have these two different languages and two different expectations. And so what happens is we have people who love God. Right? We have all these things. And how in the world do you cover all this stuff? So you go, I refuse to say Black Lives Matter because you have the stance of, I don't want to disrupt the nuclear family. And people are going, well, by saying Black Lives Matter, you're not, you're not disrupting the nuclear family. But you're going, by promoting Black Lives Matter, you're promoting an organization that disrupts the nuclear family. You understand? It's just complicated. Just complicating all this stuff. is going, even our language, when we're not hearing each other and just spitting it out. So we see right here, they hear this thing and they're going, how dare him? Just quick judgment. And I go, can we? Should we? Would we? Just pause a little bit before our suspicion and judgment. And hear what people are actually trying to communicate. Right? Because what happens in all this stuff is we get caught up in this current of our culture and it breeds chaos and uncertainty. And so how do we how do we change that? And part of it is pausing, trying to figure out what God wants us to do, how he's called us to do it, and then inviting people into that conversation, right? So you see it here in verse 63, and they all wondered. Now watch this. So John writes on the tablet, and they go, they all judge. Like, what is he thinking? That's not what our culture does. Verse 64, and watch this. And immediately, and immediately his mouth is opened, his tongue loosed, and lucid, and he spoke blessing God. You see this? So immediately what happens is John goes, no, 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 no. His name's not Zechariah. I understand. I'd love for him to follow my footsteps. I'd love to have a junior. I'd love to have an apprentice. But that's not what God called us to do. So we're not going to just chase after what our culture tells us to do. We're not going to raise our children the way that culture tells us to do, right? In the middle of this chaotic world, I'm just suspicious. Just wondering if maybe God is going, Look so much about what we thought was how culture works, how school works, how education works, how workplaces work. It's all kind of got blown up for us. And perhaps, perhaps, I don't, don't know for sure, but perhaps, perhaps God 
is reshaping our culture and reshaping the opportunity for families to spend more time together. Just to be honest. Over the last six months, particularly those with families, with kids in the home right now, have you spent more or less time with your kids? Maybe you want to spend less, but spent more? Have you had more or less good conversations? Have you been more involved in your child's life in, in terms of their academic pursuits? More involved, right? And while we can see the uncertainty and the chaos and not sure what's happening here, what we're seeing here is the, the need for the nuclear family, right? Now, there's all sorts of complications as we look at school and hear me. By next week, you'll hear how our church is going to help very specifically. We will launch what's called the CLC Learning Hub to help parents, two-income parents who need help with their children during the day. You'll hear all about this next week in, uh, in the newsletter and a, and a video that will go out on Thursday. You'll hear all about these things, right? Because we, we understand that the church's job is to help support families, but there's something in this. What if God, what he is doing in this is actually mixing everything up? so that we can spend more time together, be more intentional, more segregated, more separated, more set apart from this chaos that comes from the current of our culture, right? And it continues, and it says this. Immediately his mouth was open, his tongue loosened, and he spoke blessing to God. So here's where we go. John has been quiet for nine months. These guys are going to be really interested in what he has to say because literally he's had nine months to consider his thoughts. Nine months. So Luke tells us he immediately begins to speak. Now what's interesting is before Luke tells us what he says, really, really important, before he tells us what he says, he's actually going to give us some context to how these guys feel, right? So in just a second, we'll get this beautiful passage where uh, Zechariah declares the goodness of God. So if Mary talked about uh, who God was, Zechariah is going to talk about what God has done, is doing, and will do, right? So not just who God is, but what he does, right? So Zechariah is about to do this. But before he does that, before he does that, even though we're all like, oh, tell us what Zechariah had to say, nine months, he gives us some insight into what these guys feel. Verse 65, and it says this, and fear came on all their neighbors. And fear came on all these neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the whole country of Judea. That fear literally means they were speechless. We don't know what just happened. We don't know what just happened. We don't know what just happened. We just know that something chaotic happened. We just know that something different happened. We know that Zechariah can talk, and it says they literally were astonished and speechless and trembling before a mighty God, right? And then it says, and all these things were talked about. And then they go home and they start talking about this with everybody else. Like, you're not going to believe this. Like, his name's going to be John. Like, there's something happening. There is this, this transition in our culture. Like, there's something happening. So they're going and they're whispering and they're talking. They're going, hey, there's this, this thing happening. And people are now all of a sudden starting to notice and pay attention. Something different has happened. There's been this, this current of our culture. And all of a sudden, John the Baptist and Zechariah, I mean, and Elizabeth kind of step out of the current and go, this is different. This is set apart. And everybody's going, we can't believe it. It's crazy. He started talking again. God is up to something. We see him. We don't know what to do. And then, so they start talking about everyone. It says this in verse 66. And all who heard, and all who heard, them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Wow, this is different. This is different. We see the movement of God in this. This wasn't manufactured. This wasn't just straight through the culture. This wasn't follow the plan. This is a different plan in a different way. We see it. And they pause, and they turn, and they focus. They go, this is so distinctly different than what our current culture usually would do. So as things go against the current, people start noticing, and they start being curious, what then will this child be? That's their question. Four, they're noticing that God was in this. What would it look like for us to walk against the current of our culture and have people start noticing it, right? This idea of let your light shine before men. You know what our current culture is? We use people for our gain. We see people as means to our end. 
we're always climbing up a ladder. We're not pausing to love and care. And we're moving at a fast pace. We have lots of reasons why we can't help or serve or care or look people in the eyes or talk to our neighbors, right? Now, what would it look like? And we're talking about this. You'll hear a lot about it even this Thursday. We kind of reshape vision and go, here's what this looks like now. We're going to look at how do we engage our culture our neighborhoods, our homes, by being countercultural, right? How do we throw parties and add value? Right now, our culture is all locked in, all, you know, you know, security and precaution. What would it look like to honor people in our neighborhoods, but give them things to look forward to? Like, what would it look like to go against this crazy culture, right? This fear and worry and have confidence in that God is in this. He's providential. He's seeing it all, and he's working it all. So what we see here is, and they, 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 right? They, they looked, and they're paying attention, and they wondered, what will this mean, right? And so here's what we see. Next, and his father, his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we see the second thing that really matters, right? Not just that uh, they love God, we see it earlier when Mary and Elizabeth interact in weeks previous, and now we see it with him. Not only are these parents who love God and love them, these are parents who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Want to really help with greatness, want to really, really help shape families. You want to really get in the middle of that. Here's what it means. It means we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that has all sorts of connotations. Don't have time to talk about it now. We can cover it more in overtime. You can ask your questions. But let me just give you one quick understanding of what this means. This doesn't mean that, like, you do all sorts of weird things. You know, some of you go, man, some of those weird spirit-filled people, they do stuff. They bump me on the head. They knock me over. They blow in my face. Whatever those things you've seen on TV, the white suits, gold chairs, whatever those things are. You go, oh, not that. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about filled to be indwelled with the Holy Spirit, meaning that God is in us and speaks in us, right? And we, we've seen this in the scriptures that literally we can go back and listen to the sermon series on the Holy Spirit. It means that God breathes in us. That word spirit is pneuma, right? And so that breathes in us. It breathes new life in us. That means to be born again, meaning not only that we love God, but we know that God has forgiven us and called us to a better purpose. Now, so it's described clearly as this God breath, right? But another way that it's described is wind, Right? It's just, it's wind. So what I want you to see there, these people, these two are people that, like I want you to imagine a sailboat. There's wind. These are people. You can't move in the wind in a sailboat unless your sail is up. Now it's hard. You've got to tie it off. I don't know enough, enough about sailing to explain all that to you, but what I do know is in order to be able to move in the wind, you have to keep your sails up. Right? So these are people who are going, we're going to find where God is bl- blowing and leading, and we're going to hold fast and tight to it. We're going to keep it up. We're not going to get distracted by the mundane things. We're not going to get distracted with the, the bottle or the pill or the gossip. We're going to keep ourselves up, and we're going to go, God, where you're blowing, we want to be taken. Right? So these are people going, hey, we're not going to name him Zechariah. The reason being is because God sells, or God, the wind, the Holy Spirit is blowing this direction, and we're going to hold fast to what God is doing in our life. I love what Henry Blackaby says in Experiencing God. He said, you want to you get in on the move of God, you want to participate, you want to hear from God, find where God is at work and get involved. Find where God is at work and get involved. In other words, see where the wind's blowing and jump all the way in. So these are people who have jumped all the way in. And so, first thing is, they love God. Second, they were filled with the Holy Spirit as parents. As individuals, when you've gotten, would you just fill us? Would you give us the courage to keep our sails up? Would you give us the courage to fully trust you, even when we want to trust ourselves, even when we want to escape? Would you do that, Holy Spirit? Would you, would you do that, right? And so we see he's full of the Holy Spirit and prophesied. That means he speaks to people on behalf of God, right? Part of this going against the current of our culture is actually speaking life into our neighbors, celebrating the goodness of God to those around 
giving God credit for the good stuff in our life, right? Like, it doesn't have to be like, you have to go in, knock on doors, go, they open the door, go, if you know, if you die right now, do you know you're going? None of that stuff. But when you're interacting with people, could you prophesy? Just, could you declare the goodness of God in your current situation, even if it's hard? Can you declare the goodness of God and when um, you get a promotion? Can you uh, declare your trust and hope in God even when things go bad, right? So she prophesies this, and this is what he says. Ready for this? He's going to speak this life. Remember, Mary talked about who God is. Zechariah is going to talk about what he's done. It says, blessed. Blessed. That's the, the Greek word, eulogetos. Uh, it's the word we get eulogy for, right? This is when you speak the, the celebration of someone's life, right? So he, he eulogizes God. So blessed is the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. You see this? So this is, this is big picture. So what's really crazy about this prophecy, this declaration, is he's talking about the goodness of what God is going to do in the future. He's going, my son's going to point to the one who's going to visit us. That's Jesus and going to redeem us, deliver us. That is the Savior. So in this moment, even in the middle of these crazy things, he's been judged, he's got this new baby, he's not sure what to do, not, he's old, not sure how to take care of a baby, never had a baby before. And in this moment, he's going, but blessed, I'm going to celebrate God for what he's going to do. No, he's reminded of what God has already done, right? What he's already done for Israel. So when you see this statement about Israel, this is really, really important because this is some political statements. He is making a a statement about God's goodness for a nation, for a people. He's going, hey, there's all sorts of pain in our culture, but God is still going to visit and redeem his people, the ones that are set apart, right? And it says, and, and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house, house of his servant, David. That word horn in the, in the Old Testament talks about a ram horn, but it literally means strength. So he, and raised up a strength, like a solid strength of salvation, and for us in the house of his servant, David, that's again pointing to political, that David was a king. Like there was a good time where God was, had his kingdom and people could see his kingdom and be drawn to his kingdom. And then the, the people in the kingdom turn their back on God and go, hey, we want our own kingdom, right? Same thing we're in now. I mean, regardless how you feel about America, there are times where God is all over this nation. Others go, God, where's God now? And it seems like there's just so many people that have turned their back on God, not interested in God, not, not interested in him. Like at this point, there are tons of people that literally hate God, or hate the people that follow God, right? And so in this, he's going, hey, he has, he's not, he has, he has brought up strength, right? He has brought up the strength of salvation and the people of God. So we can go against the current of our culture and not get caught up in it because God is seeing us and he is giving us the strength to walk upriver, right? And he spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets of old. In other words, what Zechariah is saying here is this has always been the plan. God has always reminded the people that we could, we don't have to get caught up in the current of our culture. So you got Babylon. You got tyrants and as kings. And he's going, no, no, no. You don't have to get caught in that because the prophets have always reminded us we don't have to get caught up in the current of our culture because God is, is still moving and active and he has always had a plan. He has not left his hands off the plan. He is there. And watch what it says next, verse 31. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So think about this in terms of our culture. I don't know how you feel. And the vitriol, the mobs, the cancel culture, all those kind of things. He's going, hey, 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 hey. You think those are your en enemies, but let me be really clear. There's a greater enemy. And so you go, what's your enemy? What's your enemy? What is staring us down? What is the thing, right? And I would say your enemy's death. Your enemy is death. Your enemy is eternal 
disconnection from God. And there's just really, it's going to sound really dogmatic, but hear me out, right? There's evil in our world. You know it. We, we see it. We got to go, where does that come from? If God's not evil, well, there is an evilness. And that originally you see in the scripture with Satan. And basically, guys, there's just two teams. There's just two teams and two destinations. There's Satan and hell. That's death for all eternity. That means disconnected from the life source. Or there's Jesus in heaven, right? That is fully connected to the life source. So he's going, hey, our culture, our culture, hear me. The culture that we're living in, this is really important. Satan does not need to destroy you. He just needs to distract you with all these different things. Even if the things are good things that you go, let me make myself look better, be better. God, Satan's okay with that. As long as you just you get distracted long enough for you to get to death without God's covering. Right? And so he's saying, we should, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all the haters. God is going, hey, I have plucked you and brought you back to me. Right? You are, you're welcome in my kingdom. You're welcome in my culture. There's a culture of this world, and then it's broken, and it's dirty, and filled with vitriol. Or there's my kingdom, and God's going, I'm going to establish my kingdom. Right? That you can be with me now and forever. The goal from Jesus is for you and him to be together forever. Verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. So he's going, hey, here's the thing. You've got to see this. This is always in the plan. God has made a covenant. He will make a way where there is no way. There's nothing he wouldn't do. There's no mountain he wouldn't climb up, right? There is, there's nothing that he wouldn't do for you. And it says this, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. So, okay. God has a plan. God wants you to enjoy that plan. And it says, here's what that plan looks like. When you go from life to death, when you get into God's kingdom, and as opposed to getting caught up in the current of our culture, when that happens, what it does is it actually frees you. It delivers you from the hand of our enemies and it frees you not to care about all this stuff. Not to care about, you know, the, the cancel mob. Not to care about those things. That you might serve him with what? Without fear. So what do you see there? It says, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Here's, here's a quick example. Speaking of culture, this game got ruined. Um, if you're my age or maybe a little bit younger to older, you played Red Rover, right? Red Rover. It's the game where you hold hands and you run through and tear out people's shoulder sockets, right? Red Rover, Red Rover, and Josh right over, and you would run, and you would try to break the hands of the, the two people, the ones with the grip, right? And you break it, and then you would bring back your friend, right? That's how Red Rover worked. And the goal would be that it'd be everybody versus, you know, two people, and you break it, and then, then you'd win, and you'd get the whole team there. This is kind of what the picture is. This is like, he's going, we played Red Rover. We are, we are being, we are tight-gripped with Satan, the enemy. There is caught up in this culture. We are distracted. We are angry. And all of a sudden, that Jesus ran over, broke out of it, delivered us from the hand of our enemies, right? And then brought us into light. Brought us into light. And you go, well, that's awesome. Okay, that's really good that Jesus does that for us. That's right. It does. It matters that he does it for us. Okay, what does that mean if we're being brought into light? And here's what it says in verse 75. In his holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So he's going, you will get to walk in light. You'll get to enjoy light. You'll get to be in light. Okay, okay. So we can serve him all the days. How do we serve him, right? If that's what it means to not get caught up in the current of our culture, but serve others by, like, how do we do that? What does that look like? Watch what it says here. And this one you pay attention to. Verse 76. Now, uh, uh, Zechariah is going to go from talking big prophecy to kind of narrowed in to John. This is what it says. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to do what? To prepare his ways. He'll go, here's your purpose. You're going to go remove obstacles so that people can see Jesus. You're going to remove obstacles. They're hungry, you're going to feed them. 
right? If they're if they're if they're cold, you're gonna provide them with clothes. If they're if they're if they don't have any shelter, we're gonna give them shelter, right? Those are obstacles that people are so focused and consumed by that they can't actually see Jesus. And that leads to the third thing that leads to John's greatness. And here's what it is: He lived his life with purpose. He literally had purpose, and you have that purpose too. Same thing for ways. Six months. Six months, he prepares the way. That's all he gets to do. Then he gets his head cut off, right? Six months, but he lived with purpose. We get to do this. We get to speak on behalf of the prophecies, on behalf of God to our people. We get to love our neighbors. You'll hear all sorts of that. Please, please dial in. Please get our emails. Please check back for our videos because you're going to hear all the ways by which we can do this, that we can prepare the ways of our Lord to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. So you can hear, so all mankind in our community can hear of God's salvation. When we go against the current of our culture, eyes kind of pop up, and then we get to remove the obstacles so that people can understand God's salvation and receive the forgiveness of their sins so they can be made right with God. Because of their tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give, watch this, light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Let's just see this last piece to guide our feet into the way of peace. To guide our feet into the way of peace. To guide our feet into the way of peace. So he's going, here's what's going to happen. They're going to be in darkness, and all of a sudden, we're going to shine a light that they can see. Right? This is what, Ma- what it says in Matthew. Let your light so shine before men. Serve others. Why? So that people can see your good work. They can see it. They can see you going against the current of our culture, the anger, the vitriol, all those things. They can see it. And what will they do? Not celebrate you, not glorify you, but glorify our Father in heaven. What would that look like? All of a sudden, it will guide them into this, this out of the current of this culture, right? And into this, see it? Our feet into the way of peace. So I want you to hear this. If you are not a Christian, there is a way of peace. There's a way of peace. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus established that way of peace. He reached out. He saw you. He paid the price for you. And he's inviting you into that. And here's the thing I think I know. We know about each other, right? We want peace and certainty. And we understand our world doesn't offer it. And we so are longing for this deep connection and this deep purpose. And both of us would agree that we believe that we are meant to do something that matters and certainly feels like there should be legacy and an eternity to do that in. And Jesus says there's a path to that. It's away from the current of our culture and it's a path of peace and it's only through him. So our goal is just to remove all that stuff, right? So you can see Jesus. So that's what we see there. And then watch this last verse. So interesting. So what we see here is Luke kind of gives us a story, quotes Zechariah, and he just gives us one more interesting verse. And I'll give you the last point as we wrap up. And it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Told you it'd take us a while to get all the way around the barn. You see what it's saying there? It's saying, hey, his parents, they took him, and they said, we're not going to let him get in the middle of this culture. We don't let him get caught up in it. And this is hard. This is complicated. What we're going to do is we're going we're to set ourselves apart because we're not going to argue about screen times and all the arguments that happen. We're going we're gonna to set him apart. This doesn't mean he's going to be in a little bubble. This means we're going to prepare him, right? We're going to uh, remove all the stuff that keeps him kind of as a child, right? You know, Paul says, when I was a child, I thought childish things, and then I became a man, right? And so what you see happening here, what we see in this fourth thing is he grew into a man, Right? So this is just a quick, quick statement. 
we got to sort through this, right? As we see that fathers are missing, even in those statements and the, you know, the, the beliefs and in, in organizations, fathers are missing. Like, one of the things that cha- changes our culture is we got to walk against the current of our, you know, the, the, the current of our current culture, right? We've got to walk up hill against that. And what that means is we have to call us to be men and women of God. Like, so happens with John the Baptist, he goes 30 years, he prepares, and then he steps into it with courage. Not a complainer, but with courage. He didn't just come in to point out problems. He had courage. He, he waded into difficult conversations. He made declarations. He called Herod to repentance, the one who built the temple. He got his head cut off, but he was a man. Like, we have to have courage in the middle of this, right? We have to walk across the road. We have to be men of courage and valor, right? There, there's just this lostness in this that we just have grown, we have grown boys who shave. Like, at some point, we have to call our church. Like, so if you're a man, let's be a man in the middle of this, the way that John the Baptist was a man. If you're raising boys, let's, let's teach them to be men, right? Let's teach them to love God and celebrate God. And here's a way to start that right now. You know what men don't do? They don't praise other people. They definitely don't look towards God because men in our world are one of two things. Either we never grew up and we're so codependent, so we've got to keep our wives happy, all that falsehood, right? Or we still live in our basements and mom and dad take care, and so we have that insecurity. Or the other side, we, we think it's all up to us. And so here's a way to start just today. For those of you who are men, it's going to be awkward for you, but today we can at least start by proclaiming the goodness of who God is. Look, listen to me, man. Your number one responsibility is not to take care of your family or provide for them. Secondary, yes, but here's your number one responsibility. Hear me, hear me. Your number one responsibility is to model faith in a God who sent his son, Jesus, as Savior. Your number one responsibility is to model that faith for your family. Your kids are watching. Your wife is watching. Your neighbors are watching. Your co-workers are watching. Model that faith. So what made John so unique is for 30 years he was set apart preparing for this so that he could make a way, so he could prepare the way to show that there was a way, right? And so, man, you actually get that opportunity now. Because what we're going to do is we're going to close in song. And that song is Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Light in the Darkness. That is who you are. Can you make that statement? Do you feel comfortable making that statement in front of your kids? Do you feel comfortable pointing your family? Like John the Baptist pointed all people to. Can, can we be men in this? If you're raising children, can you give them that confidence? Women, could you be confident that that is who he is? Like, can we set ourselves apart in all this culture? 30 years he set himself apart to show up and say, prepare the way of the Lord. Because there is a way maker. Make straight paths for him. Because that is who he is. Feel on every mountaintop. Move every valley. Make every crooked path straight. So we're going to do now. So we're going to sing that song. And I pray for those of you who believe this, that we would model this by declaring this truth of who God is. That's kind of the beginning process of stepping out of the current of our culture, walking upstream collectively with Jesus in us, his spirit empowering us. Can we do that? And so we're going to sing this together now. Would you join me? I worship you I worship 
working in this place I worship you I worship you Waymaker, miracle worker Promise keep Light in the darkness My God, that is who you are Waymaker, miracle worker in the darkness, my God, that is who you Thanks for joining us today. You got some questions? Uh, email us overtime at clcfamily.church. Would love to cover those this week in our uh, live.
podcast on Tuesdays and then throughout the week. Love to do that. Now, other thing I tell you is, please be paying attention to all of our channels. Uh, newsletter, if you don't have that, send us your email address. Um, if you ha- don't have the app, go down the app. Uh, go download the app. You can text CLC Family, one word, app. That's the second word, APP, to 77977. So we can give you updates that way. You can keep an eye on our website and on Facebook and all those channels because we've got some big announcements this week, particularly as it relates to how we're going to engage this year with the chaos of our culture and as it relates to education systems, right? And so we will be starting a learning hub, a full day coverage supervision for kiddos that have parents who work during the day. You'll hear more about that and be kind of transforming our space to make that available for families throughout the week as well, as well as you'll be hearing news about our plans to reopen indoors over the next few weeks. So questions about today's sermon? Over time at clcfamily.church. Any other stuff, you can email us at info at clcfamily.church. Let us know that you would like to get updates from us. Make sure to pay attention to our different forms of communication. Love you guys, and I can't wait to see you in real life. Uh, Take care.